I would love to see cybersecurity built into more degrees uh, at university where marketing would learn about data security and where teachers would learn about how to build cyber into the conversations within the classroom. And I was talking to a, um, uh, a security lady the other day about how developers often come out of uni and they haven't done any secure coding within university. And that blows my mind that that, that same, any tech degree should have an element of cyber in it. Amazing. Claire, thanks so much for joining us on Dark Mode. Great to have you. Thanks for having me join you today. Like a lot of people in cyber and a lot of wonderful guests that we have on Dark Mode, you have quite a diverse and inspiring background yourself. So I'd like to actually just open up for the audience to introduce you quite formally, if I could take a moment. So Claire Pales is the author of the best-selling book, The Secure CIO, and co-author of The Secure Board, a podcast host and director, leveraging years of experience in corporate, cyber, and information security roles. Claire's work with boards, audit committees, executives, and security staff has prov provided her with appropriate skills to influence, coach, and facilitate company executives and security leaders in establishing teams and delivering security best practice. In addition to a postgraduate qualification in e-crime, Claire is a qualified coach and graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Claire is a member of the Digital Advisory Committee for the Breast Cancer Network Australia, a cause that is close to her heart. And in 2019, Claire was named a Fellow of the Australian Information Security Association. Based in Geelong, Claire is a mum to four children, a sought-after speaker and an advocate for all people, people in cyber. <laughs> It is never easy to hear your own bio be read out loud. <laughs> no, it's not at all, is it? But how, I mean, it's just like an amazing background too, Claire. So I'm sure we're going to draw a lot of great insights out of the conversation today. Thank you. <laughs> all that amongst four children as well, Clay. You're a superstar. Thank you. I don't sleep much. I tell people <laughs> like, so yeah. <laughs> amazing. Um, so Claire, I'd actually like to jump straight into it and hear your perspective on some of the big headlines that just continue to occur in our region and particularly with your engagement day-to-day and -day a lot of security leaders, business leaders and boards. Um, what are your thoughts on the landscape there and prioritizing cyber and maybe how we regulate and govern some of these measures um, and potentially even like the repercussions and the like of breaches and compromises like this occurring? Would love to hear your perspective. That is a very big question. <laughs> 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 where to start i think that globally what we're seeing at the moment is um a little bit of an awakening uh as industry leaders we've probably seen this coming for quite some time and thought that eventually it would come i, th I th still think it's going to take some time but over the um the world at the moment we're seeing breaches and organizations realizing that maybe they hadn't put the investment in that they thought they had. Um, personally, I see a lot of organizations buying a lot of tech and thinking that they put tech in place, they have an implementation plan for tech. And when I say tech, I mean security infrastructure, firewalls, detection mechanisms, um, and those types of technologies, thinking that that is a risk-based investment for their organization in response to what they perceive as the threats that their organization is exposed to. Unfortunately, 
where they leave a gap is around the people and the change, the people change management. So not the, the change advisory boards and the, the technical side of things, lots of organizations have those, but it's the people change around, you know, this is how we used to operate, but now with the threat landscape changing, this is how we need to operate and taking the business such a cliche, but taking the business on that journey helping the developers understand that actually we don't just need to code, but we need to do it securely. And here's some guidelines to do that and maybe some automation, but helping them to understand the why, not just the, here's a new tool that we're going to put in as part of this, this process. So organizations from the board, right down to the people who are in the tech teams and in the marketing teams and across the employee community. Everybody needs to start to change their mindset around cyber. And some of the incidents that we've seen in the press of late, because it's had such a huge community impact, it's helping people to start to open their eyes to it because all of a sudden it's them, it's, it's their data. And as organ, as security leaders, we always say to people, imagine this was your money or imagine this was your data. Well, there are millions of Australians now that don't have to imagine that anymore. They are now experiencing that in their day-to-day -day lives and realizing the exposure that organizations have been facing for a long time, but actually that exposure has, has, or that threat has now come to fruition. So I deal a lot with boards and uh, with directors. And what I find is that they are not necessarily confident in the information that's coming up to them. So from the incidents that have been happening recently, I don't know that boards necessarily have had a really good understanding of what's happened. And you know, if we talk about the elephant in the room, that the Optus breach, um, I think it's a challenge now that a lot of senior leaders know what an API is, because I don't think they really need to know <laughs> what an API is. They need to know what the business ramifications are of that type of exposure. They don't need to know the ins and outs of the technology at their level to make decisions and to lead a culture of security. They need to know what the impact of, an, of, of a breach like that is on an organization. So for businesses, having the right policies, culture, standards, governance in place is far more important uh, at that decision-making level and the culture level than it is for them to know, you know, what the ins and outs are of, of the technology. And I, I also think maybe it's a bit bold, but I also think it's a bit too early for us to be calling how, how those, these particular incidents have been happening. Cause the investigation is still going on and, um, yeah, but I guess that's, that's my opinion, popular or unpopular. <laughs> it's a good, a good opinion. Honestly, it's, uh, it's refreshing, uh, because there seems to be a lot of scapegoating happening at the moment, uh, because there's been so much public involvement, there's mainstream media involvement, there seems to be a lot of witch hunting and finding the person to blame, which is, it's disheartening, but at the same time, it's reality. Uh, and until we breed more of a, a security awareness culture outside of the, uh, infosec community and, and more from personal levels as well, that's when we'll start understanding and people will be able to have due process, uh, and we'll be able to have the investigations out there fully before people make comment. Uh, and then you know, we'll be able to understand it more, more broadly. My question to you, Claire, is, uh, as a result of these type of breaches, dealing with boards all the time, do you then take these scenarios and do tabletops or like, I would imagine that boards would ask you questions of, 
what happened with Optus? What happened with Uber? Are we prepared? These types of things. Do you take these scenarios and then utilize them with your uh, connections? Yeah. So, um, I guess I, what I've seen in the last few weeks is lots of boards going to their cyber leaders or their CIOs or CTOs and saying, what's our API position. Yeah. And that's a really dangerous path to go down because what about all of this other stuff that's going on? That's not an API that we need to focus on. So yes, it's important for organizations to understand how their APIs are protected and what that infrastructure and process might look like, but it's one piece of a much, much bigger puzzle. And so what I've been doing in relation to this is when I get in front of boards, obviously I have these, um, sessions with boards that were pre-booked well before we knew Optus was going to have the incident that they had. And so when we get in the room, we don't necessarily talk about Optus. Um, we talk about lots of different case studies, but helping the, the directors to understand what they have perceived has gone on in the media and what they, they would, how they would respond if they were in a position like that. And what's good about those conversations is it helps directors to understand the value of these scenarios. And, you know, I don't like to get into a boardroom and be a talking head and just say to directors, you know, here's a whole bunch of stuff about cyber. I want it to be a conversation and I want them to be reflecting, you know, and as, as an executive coach, I'm often asking the directors questions rather than me just imposing cyber awareness onto these people. So, you know, we talk about how would you have done differently if you had have been the CEO that had to talk to the media about this? What would you have written differently in the comms that went out to customers? How quickly do you think you would have communicated to customers? What data have you got and where is that data? And do you actually need all of that data? And, you know, we have some clients who do have a lot of data and it's sensitive data and they have to keep it for a long time because of the, t the nature of their businesses. So where do they keep that data? So, you know, we're not sitting there talking about, well, where did Optus go wrong or where did Optus go right? We're sitting there reflecting on, okay, well, here's a case study. You could put any name at the top. As an organization, how would we have done that differently? Because I think directors often look at scenario exercises and think, well, that's another half day that we could be doing something different. You know, we could be looking at M&A or we could be considering the future of our organization. That's what these scenarios are. It's considering the, the business continuity. It's the solvency. It's the reputation. It's the, the financial implications. It's risk. They're all things that directors need to focus on. So a scenario like that allows them to reflect in a very safe learning environment. Actually, if I had to put that hat on, what, what would we have done the same or differently or, um, or in a, in a different world, you know, if we had have had that exposure, what would our position be? And I want to pick up on something, Ben, that you said earlier about awareness and I have a real bugbear with this word. Um, and anyone who's listened to my podcast, um, would know that I, I did a whole season on, on awareness because I, I feel like if we're aware, it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to do something about it. And, but there's not, there's not really a, a way to describe it because behavior change or influence is, isn't really right either. It's, it has to be become part of the fabric of you, the way you do business. And the only way to do that is for people at the top to be having difficult conversations that feel uncomfortable in the same way, you know, we all use this analogy about safety back in the eighties, it was very uncomfortable to make everybody put on a hard hat or wear a seatbelt or put on steel cap boots. 
Um, but look at how we've changed things um, in the last, you know, 30 or 40 years. So, yeah, I don't like the word awareness. And I'll, pr I'll probably use it today myself, but <laughs> I, I feel like it's, um, you know, if we're on that kind of uh, the change curve, awareness is the first, um, the first point, but it doesn't, being aware doesn't actually change your behavior. Um, so I try, I try not to use that word, but pick me up on it if I do. <laughs> But yeah, I love a good right. challenge, Claire. No worries at all. <laughs> challenge everything and anything. Um, something you were speaking about before, Claire, I'd be interested to know what you think about. Why, why do you believe security is almost in this reactive sort of culture, this knee-jerk reaction? You alluded before to observing a lot of board members coming to the organizational leaders and saying, well, what's the posture or what's our status around APIs? You know, that seems very reactive to me. So why do you think security is like that? Um... I think that security is like that because it's not as well understood as a risk as it could be. So the security leaders will come to the board with a strategy and what I've found through research and through talking to security leaders and board members is that there's a difficulty in the two parties understanding each other. I think there's a lot of security leaders out there who don't understand the board and what the board is there for and have an expectation that the board is going to do something or say something or give them something. And there's a lot of directors out there who don't necessarily understand what the security team are there to do. And there's a, um, a, a need or a desire for investment. So the security leader comes and says, here are all of our gaps. We need $5 million. The board gives them $5 million and they think that's the end. They think security is this project that you put money into. And I'm generalizing, so, you know, please, um, uh, there are organizations out there and security leaders and directors who don't fit the mold that I'm describing, but I worry that there's a, a culture of compliance in some businesses. So some organizations put money in, think security is a project and then think, well, we should be secure now. There's another group, I suppose, who are possibly regulated or, um, or feel that there's a, um, an audit that's coming or an internal audit or a, um, a risk audit that then says, okay, well, if we meet these things and we're compliant, but that doesn't necessarily make you secure. So I, I don't think we've got an environment yet where there's a mindset that if we're proactive about security and we build it in at the start, then we won't sort of face the, um, challenges that some organizations are facing at the moment in terms of incident response or having to, to, um, respond to incidents. So because we're not proactive enough, and that that's for many reasons with th there are not enough security leaders out there, the teams aren't big enough. The investment isn't necessarily where it needs to be. And there's, as I mentioned this, I think it's a huge lack of understanding about how to manage cyber risk within an organization. And so when an incident happens, obviously on the scale of some of the ones that we're seeing, you know, around things like colonial pipeline and, and Optus then we're seeing this response because it's in the press and people say, oh, well, we should probably have a look at what, what we're doing in this space and whether or not we're doing things right. Unfortunately, if we could sort of backpedal that a bit and be a bit more proactive uh, and invest more, it doesn't actually always have to be financial investment. Sometimes it's about time and it's about, as I said, these uncomfortable conversations. Then we might start to see more resilience we're always going to be reacting to what the cyber criminals are um, putting out there and, and are putting organizations through. But if we can contain those incidents a bit more and be a bit more resilient to them, 
then they might not blow out to be on the front page of, of the AFR. Do you think that there's a shift happening at all from a board level to care a bit more about security and truly understanding different adversarial motivations and, and almost the spectrum and the state of flux that cyber is always in, Claire? I think there is a shift and I, I wouldn't have a business if there wasn't. Um, you know, I think that the, the number of directors now, and I, and I probably think more aspiring directors, there's a lot of leaders out there who are starting to see that without this knowledge, they can't be a confident director. There's also a whole bunch of people who don't want to be directors because of the additional pressures that are being placed on them. We've got climate change or everything that comes under that ESG or environment, social governance banner, there's a huge amount that sits under there that's quite um, concerning for people who are putting themselves in the director's chair around the board table about the accountability they're taking on. You know, there's um, modern slavery, there's uh, cyber risk, obviously. There's so much going on around the globe now that as a director, you have to attest that you're comfortable with, in addition to all the things you had to do before around, um, you know, balance sheets and, and the organizational um, solvency as I said, reputation, that side of things in director's duties. So the requirement of requirements of a director these days can be or are significantly different to what they were before. And I am seeing a shift, but it's, it's a slow burn. And, you know, I talk a lot about the fact that managing cyber risk is 70% risk management that directors should already know how to do. And it's that 30% that they just need to have more confidence in. And you can't go and do a single course. You can't have me come and speak at your board once, you know, and then all of a sudden your literacy's gone up. It's a, it's an ongoing thing. If I was on a board and I'd done one, one day course in how to manage finances and read a balance sheet, I don't think I'd get the job as, as a director, <laughs> but yet we allow directors to come onto boards who might've done a one day course in cyber risk management or, or listen to a few podcasts. And we allow them to sign off cyber strategies that are worth millions of dollars. So coming back to your, your question, there is a shift happening and we are talking to more and more directors and that they, they are seeking this knowledge more, but I still think that it's going to take time. And we are also seeing organizations setting up advisory boards or, um, technology committees that the board are delegating this responsibility to so that there are my, more minds around the table who have the uh, understanding around how to manage this risk. You can't completely absolve that risk down to a committee, but at least we're seeing change towards a group of people who can help to make decisions, who have the knowledge. Do you think it's natural reform that'll occur or do you think we need more regulation, Claire? Look, this is really hard and I've seen so much chatter about this on LinkedIn um, and in the press and you know, in the circles that, that we operate in around cybersecurity peers in this industry. I, I think the government has a role to play. I think regulation is important and we've seen it work in other industries. And, you know, people have been talking on LinkedIn about how it worked around asbestos and it worked around, um, road safety and it's worked around, um, some health requirements and, it, you know, that there is a place for regulation. We just have to be so careful that it doesn't drive this compliance mindset that I was talking about earlier, where if we tick all of these boxes, then, you know, we're compliant and therefore we won't get a fine. 
it doesn't mean we're not secure. And we've seen organizations in the past, we saw Home Depot and T Target, you know, in the last decade, both of them were PCI compliant when they had major cyber breaches. So regulation has a place. I absolutely agree with that. But I also think that it still has to be a shift within the organization to not just meet a compliance requirement, but actually to be more secure and think through what that means to you as an organization. Because every business is different, which is the other issue with regulation is it can often be a um, too ge more generic than we than an organization needs from a, a security perspective. What's the sweet spot, Claire, for leaders in ascertaining a good cybersecurity measures? Is it do you typically see it based off the that those resilience measures like risk thresholds and what they're prepared to accept or transfer? Who who's accountable for what? And what you alluded to at the start, you know, there's it's very clear that you need a very holistic strategy, which includes technology as well as the people element and even the processes and systems there. Um, is there anything that you, you observe in terms of how organizations do that differently when it comes to cybersecurity? Yeah, I think that, um, one thing I've seen work really well is for the security leader to have relationships with the executives, um, outside of just technology. So regular conversations with the CEO so that they can understand where the CEO is trying to take the organization and the CEO can understand what the CISO is facing. You know, the security leader is in a very thankless job, <laughs> um, in a very reactive job, um, often under-resourced. Um, so I don't necessarily think that there are organizations out there doing this well or doing this right, because, you know, as I mentioned, every single business is different. The context is different. You can put two banks next to each other and they need to do things differently. Um, but I think the businesses who are having conversations about cybersecurity out in the open are the ones that are, as a business, maturing faster in this space. You know, getting the CEO to talk about cyber incidents that have happened at town halls, having the security leader known within the organization, because the last thing you want in the face of a crisis is for the CEO and the CISO to be meeting for the first time. So it's, it's having trust across the organization, building a, a, a what am I? It's building a, an infrastructure in your business where those conversations can happen, where they're not hierarchical. And you, you know, the security leader isn't buried down in the organization somewhere. They're out talking to people, they're having conversations. And I met a CISO once who had this kind of roulette game that he would play where he would just pick someone off the global address address list and go and meet them and have a coffee with them, no matter what level they were in the organization, you know, they could have been the receptionist. They could have been, um, somebody who worked in the, um, the marketing department or HR, and he would just meet someone every cup, every fortnight, I think he would go and have coffee with someone in the business and uplift their cyber knowledge, but also hear what some of their challenges are totally unsecurity related. And so businesses that are doing cyber well, I think, are not burying cyber and they are having these conversations. They're running drills, they're testing themselves. They are involving more than just this security team in cyber conversations. So cyber can't be an island. It's got to be kind of part of the, the bigger picture. And if the CEO is going to give time to that, then I think that's a really, really important start. 
I do. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, absolutely. That was good. So I have a copy in Ireland. So I'm, I'm going to write that down and take that away. Cyber <laughs> Island. Ben, you would be a you would be an attendee on that Cyber yeah, Island for sure. For sure. <laughs> Claire, it sounds like um, the way you're talking at the moment. It sounds like the the CISO almost or the the security leader in the business almost needs to be an internal and an external security champion. Uh, and uh, I, I see really great security leaders that are and they embody that position. Uh, but then you also see some that, uh, the opposite as in, they're not the, uh, the ex extrovert, they're more introverted, but focus deep on what the security looks like internal to the organization. I agree that the organizations that have that ex extroverted, uh, evangelist security leader out in public talking about it, they're the ones that generally, <clears throat> forgive me, that is more mature in their security approach. Is that because they have to be because they're talking more about it and it puts more emphasis on the security of the organization because they're out in the public? Um, I'll probably refine my answer a little bit. Um, I don't necessarily think they have to be out talking in the public. Hmm. Um, and I think organizations have to be really careful about how much their CISO advises customers, um, because there's a duty of care line that needs to be drawn around, um, how much a organization advises customers on what they should be doing, you know, and what antivirus they should be having, or, you know, I think it stops at kind of the strength of your password and your multi-factor authentication and that kind of side of things where the organization has some control over what the customer might be doing. But, um, and I, I hate the word evangelist, <laughs> I don't know where I it came or why we use it in, um, in cyber, but, uh, it's my, probably my least favorite word, but. Um, I, I do agree with you though, that the security leader has to be, has to have a very strong personality around, uh, the conversations that need to be had. They need to be someone who's influential and can negotiate and they can't be someone who's quite binary. You know, they need to be someone who, who can live in the gray to an extent because security and compliance can sometimes be very binary. You know, you've either got this or you don't, you're either on the bus or you're not. Whereas organizations don't operate like that. So, you know, having someone who can understand that decisions are risk-based and they're not always going to fall on the side that the security leader might want them to be, but how do we kind of meet in the middle, I think is incredibly important. Um, I think that, uh, security leaders need to get out within the, their own community, definitely. And we see lots of pockets of, um, great opportunities for security leaders to come together and share best practice. You know, this is not something where you're competing as a, you know, as I said before, you might have two banks, but their security leaders might talk regularly because it's not commercially, um, uh, you're not commercially sort of butting heads. This is about how as an industry, do we protect, um, our customers? Because a lot of us are sharing customers across, you know, different organizations. So th there has to be a confidence there in security leaders coming together and having those conversations. And so having a security leader who doesn't like talking to others and doesn't like, um, evangelizing security is probably going to put some limitations on how far security can uh, embed itself within the organization. You know, again, the security leader can't just sit back in a, in a pocket in the organization. They have to be out there having conversations. One of the challenges, and I was talking to a, a CISO about that this during the week was he is so busy fighting fires <laughs> that he doesn't necessarily have a lot of time to prioritize 
getting out and talking to um, parts of the organization. And that's a real balance in, you know, having a very small team where your security leader might be operational as well as being the, the you know, they're tactical as well as strategic. How do they prioritize that time to get out there and talk as well? So um, I definitely think that, you know, if you think from a skills perspective, that's something CISOs need to be honing is their ability to have that influential conversation, but also, you know, work with whoever they're dealing with. But I, I stand by being very careful about how much they're pushing out to the outside world around giving advice to, to people who are on the other side. Well, perhaps a really good segue, a question I prepared earlier and you were just actually speaking about it then. So maybe going a little bit deeper, which is, I noticed that you mentioned an ongoing focus on bringing together like-minded people across organizations and to really establish secure ways of working. Is there anything that you would like to see developed further or refined or perhaps even changed in our industry as it relates to that last point? Um, it's... <sighs> I'm seeing a lot of really good groups, as I said, come together already. And some of those people pay to be part of, and some of those are free. Um, and you know, some of them are as simple as just a WhatsApp group, um, of security leaders. Um, what I'd love to see more of is, uh, leaders who are aspiring to get into those positions, helping them to understand what it's like to be in those roles, because um, we're not seeing a huge amount of two ICs or, um, deputy CISOs and, and some organizations are doing that, but when the security leader is done in an organization, we often see that seat become empty. So they'll go off and join another business and then it can take a long time to fill that role. So what I would love to see is more nurturing of the up and comers, you know, the, the people who are, um, aspiring CISOs or aspiring heads of, or, um, have some skills, but maybe don't have, uh, all of the skills you need. And, um, for the people listening on the podcast, Gabe's clapping. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> a great suggestion. That's yeah. an awesome, but yeah, you know, look, I, I do work with the Australian Women in Security Network, um, with some aspiring CISOs and helping them to understand what sort of skills are needed and, you know, what where some of the gaps might be because technology leaders, CIOs are often the person who's hiring a security leader, but we also see that security can be a black box for CIOs. You know, they, they may not have had that exposure or they might not have led security teams in the past. So if this is a new role or they're filling a role for the first time and they don't necessarily understand the expectations or the, the capability required in a security leader, then they might be interviewing and they're facing a an aspiring person on the other side of the table who doesn't necessarily have all the skills and experience that is needed. And we often see the wrong people get hired by organizations into security leadership roles, or we get the right person, but the role they've applied for doesn't end up being exactly what they thought it would be. So attrition is an issue at that leadership level. Most CISOs stay for about two years. Um, and we're seeing that globally, although some people are bucking that trend by changing things up or the threats change or they have a breach and, you know, so they do stay in roles for longer, but it's, it's, I hope to see security leaders stay for a full strategic cycle and then have some people below them who can be, um, shadowing them to understand what exactly they face as a CISO. You know, they, they work long hours. Um, they have to think strategically, 
you know, in one minute and then the next meeting they end up in might be tactical as we talked about earlier. So that's something I would love to see more of is getting people to understand what it would be like for them to be in a CISO role and what's missing from their CV in order to get them there because they might have been a GRC lead or a, tech, a, a security operations lead and the, the gap between that role and a CISO role can be significant and the shift in your thinking can be uh, quite overwhelming, I think, if you manage to get into a CISO role. Ben, would you like to be a CISO one day? One day, I absolutely would. And that was, yeah, absolutely my follow-up. So Claire, what would be the fundamental skills for an aspiring CISO? If, if, if I was asking you just as a, a generalist in cyber, what are some of the fundamental skill sets required from your lens on, on what uh, a CISO needs? So I definitely think, uh, I've got an opinion, but I can also tell you what I see CIOs are after as well. And um, from a leadership perspective, the CISO really needs to understand how to strategically lead. And it, this all depends on the organization. And I also want to say that the term CISO and the term head of are often used interchangeably, but I think there can be some differences between those two things as well. And head ofs are sometimes in smaller or mid-tier organizations, and they can still be quite operational. Whereas what we should be seeing is if you've got a chief information security officer title, you probably shouldn't still be doing as much operational activities as maybe a head of would do. Again, I'm talking in generalities because people use these terms interchangeably. You also see VPs of security. You see global roles that it might just be the one person and they don't have any staff. Like There's so much um, complexity to what these titles mean. But if I just use the term title in, you know, for the purposes of this experiment, um, the, the key things that you definitely need are that strategic leadership. Um, you need to be able to think commercially, the, the commercial acumen of understanding that putting security measures in place can potentially impact your organization's ability to trade or, or to, um, to fulfill their strategic obligations. So getting in a meeting and being able to understand the commerciality of the conversation and, and what the people on the other side of the table, you know, the product leaders or the, the, the CFO might be wanting to talk to you about and not just coming to the table with security or risk, um, obligations. So strategic leadership, commercial acumen, uh, the ability to lead a team and build a team, you know, understanding good self-awareness, understanding what your skills and capabilities are. And so therefore, what do you need in the people who are reporting to you? And, you know, personally, I don't like to use the word subordinates because I think everybody around the table is a leader in whatever they do, you know, you're working with them, not, not, they're not working for you, but, um, having that ability to build a team and understand what the operating model needs to look like. And that comes back to the strategic thinking as well. Um, technical acumen, definitely, depending on the organization, I don't know that it has to be, you don't have to necessarily have a computer science degree. I know lots of CISOs out there, me included, who don't have a commercial, sorry, don't have a computer science degree, but you have to have a level of technical literacy where you can hold a conversation. If you're working in a tech company, um, then what I've seen work really well is for the CISO to be someone who's come up as a, you know, they might've been a pen tester by trade, or they might've been in security operations and they've built their leadership and strategic thinking skills to a point where they could become a CISO. 
because everyone in the organization is wanting to have a technical conversation. So really thinking through what type of CISO you need while I'm talking generally about the types of skills they need, the context of your organization is incredibly important. Um, I think you have to understand finances and budgets and, you know, even if you're fortunate enough to have someone in your team who manages that for you, you have to understand how, how that budget works and, and I guess being able to then have conversations with the C-suite, you can have those um, budgetary conversations as well. You can build a business case, which comes back to your strategic leadership skills as well. So, um, I mean, they're just a few, but uh, most CISOs I know have been working in security for about a decade. I don't, I don't think there's a right or wrong around how many years experience you need. Um, but in order to have that commercial acumen, the strategic thinking, the ability to build a team, um, the ability to lead a team, um, the ability to face a crisis, most of those skills and experience you, you wouldn't have unless you'd been in the workforce for, you know, um, a considerable amount of years. Uh, organizations who give CISOs a go, who haven't been a CISO before, uh, who might have gaps in that sort of skills and capabilities, the key thing I think for them to understand is that they have to hold that person's hand and they can't just set and forget when they put a CISO in place as well. So whoever you hire, if there's gaps in their CV, um, making sure that you have a plan in place to fill those gaps because otherwise as a CISO, they can't be successful. You beat me to it. I wrote down advice boards to look at new potential upcoming CISOs. So thank you for answering that one as well. And that was great advice. I took down a lot of notes there personally. That was a selfish question for mine, but I know that a lot of listeners, uh, there might be some aspiring CISOs and, uh, that they're looking to come up the ranks as well. So that advice will go long and far. So appreciate that. Claire, thank you for that. And look, I, to, to interject, I, I know there's things that I didn't list then, but because I, yeah, it is a long list of, of skills and experience that contribute to being a CISO, but they're kind of some of the highlights. I, I'll just add. Highlights reels are the best reels. So appreciate it. <laughs> but you're talking about our titles before. Uh, I've spoken with a fair few CISOs who have bucked the trend and knocked the eye out of CISO as just being a chief security officer. Yeah. Do you think there's value in that or is it just a title shift? Uh, it, it can depend a lot on what the remit of that leader is. Uh, it can also depend on their skills and experience. And we do see sometimes in critical infrastructure, the eye will disappear because the security leader may have physical security underneath them, or they may have operational security responsibilities. And so they don't see themselves as just a chief information security officer. They, they see themselves as a, um, a much more diverse leader. Um, I, I think titles are probably a, a topic that people could talk about for a long period of time. Um, no matter what you're called, I guess it's about your organization recognizing you as the, the thought leader in this space, but not just, not the person who is solely responsible and accountable for security. So I, I don't know, as I said earlier, there's, there's heads of that are probably speaking at a strategic level and facing the board. And there's CISOs who are buried three layers down in an organization. So I, I know a couple of security leaders who have um, particular skill sets that do make them a CSO. You know, they do have a background in uh, physical security and travel security and fraud, 
corporate security uh, and investigations, you know, and the kind of information side of things. So they do bring to the table all the things of a CSO. But I also think that no matter what your title is, it's about how you deliver the um, deliver to the security expectations of your organization. Love that. Really interesting, Claire, how you mention a lot about the strategic leadership as well. It's just like, you know, age old skills on communicating well and being a good, good conduit into this security measures back into the rest of the C-suite and into the board. Just smoking because Claire's just disappeared. Love talking to your background. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, no, 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 you're right. <laughs> just plugging in and I can think that. <laughs> yeah, of course. No, too good. Um, so all very noteworthy points for me. I found that really insightful. And I think you're on track, mate. You're good to go. Who, me? Up into the C-suite. Yeah. 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 One day, hopefully. I've got a lot of learnings to do. Claire, just for, for context, I, uh, I was sort of mid three quarters of the way through masters of cyber. And, uh, as a result of some of the conversations we have on the podcast, I've pivoted and as of next year, going to start an MBA to get the business acumen, uh, rather than sort of learning everything I've already learned along my journey in the security industry in the masters and, and trying to understand the business side as well. So that advice, yeah, rung very true for me. So appreciate it. Oh, all the best with your studies. I, um, uh, I don't know, maybe an MBA is a good idea. For me, although I've learned most of my commercial acumen by running my own business and the peaks and, and troughs of that, I suppose, but, um, MBA is a great opportunity. And there are some unis now that are blending the MBA with uh, a cyber track or a cyber, um, I can't think of the right word. Track uh, works. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of unis in Australia where you can build cyber subjects into the MBA. So I think that'd be brilliant. Does yours do that currently, Gabe? I'm nearly finished my MBA. I have, yeah. I have the capstone coming up next month. Oof. So you are supposed to do that on the last subject, but I've got financial management next. That'll be me done in my last six months of study. We do have at Sydney University, three flavors of MBA. One of them is a technologist track. So it's a bit broader than cybersecurity, but it will weave in a lot of those themes. So, but I have noticed that as well, Claire and a lot of the academia blending in a few cross-pollinations and things like that. So I think it's awesome. It's great. Any sort of interdisciplinary or tangential type education, I think is awesome. You learn so much from diverse disciplines and the rest. Tangential. That's the word of the day. <laughs> wow. Tan How did that spell that? A word that you were trying to flip in. Open it. Yeah. Nailed it for lunch. <laughs> I just love, uh, my Ben's just always noting down words for future studies. Classic. Is it tangential? Yeah. yeah. Oh, didn't even know that existed. Like the, like a tangent, like, you know, yeah. I've gone off on a tangent here. So right. can I go off on a tangent for a second? Um, just on that, on that topic. Um, I would love to see cybersecurity built into more degrees, uh, at university where marketing would learn about data security and where teachers would learn about how to build cyber into the conversations within the classroom. I'd love to see much more of that built into degrees that have what people would think have nothing to do with cybersecurity, but are, yeah, it's kind of, that's a, a life skill. I think now that, that kids need and uni students need. And I was talking to a, um, uh, a security lady the other day about how developers often come out of uni and they haven't done any secure coding within university. And that blows my mind that 
that that saying any tech degree should have an element of cyber in it. But I think we could look to other degrees as well around nursing and um, engineering and you know any of those where they're going to be facing sensitive data or uh, sensitive IP. Or I'm not sure why you guys are laughing at me. But oh, it's a lovely. <laughs> no, we just get. We're just getting riled up, Claire, because we talk very passionately just about the education system in general. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think any sort of tech type education, we're going to have to surely start seeing security baked into that. Yeah. Such a fundamental skill set as you're describing. But it perhaps makes sense. It just, it just makes sense. We're just moving to such a digital world. Uh, everyone yeah. has responsibilities and security as a result of, and the more we know, the more we can act on. Yeah, but even do even doctors or, you know, think about the data that they are taking on every day and the people that sit within their surgeries and, and serve their customers, but the, the protection of that information is so incredibly important. And yet we don't teach them any of that at, in the years of their life where they're taking on all, I know they're taking on a lot of information at uni, but this is kind of that overlay that no matter what job they go out into. They, they need to understand how to protect sensitive, how to identify sensitive information and then how to protect that. So we could definitely build it into far more degrees than just technology. Yeah. Do you think that's the same argument as digital skill sets, Claire? I mean, everything, technology is ubiquitous these days. And I think like a, like an always on campaign is security. That's the undertone there. But, um, you know, sort of in an accelerated pace of change right now where we, we're lacking a lot of those skill sets, digital, tech, cyber in general. I, I don't think any company can say these days that they're not a technology business. You know, if you, if you take email away from an organization, I mean, that's gen, often the, the kind of lifeblood of how it operates. And, you know, we, we saw with NHS a few years ago, um, without computers, they couldn't do operations because they couldn't check that the person's wristband was the same as the, the number on the, the database, you know, and so every business now relies so heavily on technology to save lives and to transact. And so every organization is a technology business because without it, um, I, I, I spoke to a board a few months ago now, um, and they were the board and the CEO of a window manufacturer. And, you know, we, we spoke to them about the fact that if they had to shut their systems down because of ransomware attack, for example, what would that mean to their business? And what they discovered was that within a few days, yes, they could still build windows, but their business would start to grind to a halt because they couldn't quote because all the logic of their quoting was in a computer system. Um, and they couldn't fill orders and they couldn't, um, write new invoices. And so very quickly. This idea that they could operate on pen and paper would basically bring their organization to a halt. And if you think of the ongoing implications of that for the building industry, where they're supplying those windows, um, if they couldn't get their operations back up and running quickly, the flow on effects are quite, um, considerable. So, you know, even a window manufacturer that thinks, well, we're just here making windows, they need digital skills and a digital understanding. So yeah, I, I completely agree that. We need to be teaching. I mean, kids are learning this now. They're all natives now um, to the iPad in schools that we see. Um, but uh, even teachers now, schools are 24-7 now. They used to be nine till three. Now they're every day of the week. I got an email from my kids' school yesterday on a Sunday afternoon. So, you know, we just, everything now is revolving around comp 
computers and automation and, and skills. And we've probably got COVID to thank a lot for that. But, um, but going forward, we have to be teaching people how to use the, how to gain digital skills and, and how to use them for good and not evil. Very true. Very, very true. Just quickly, Claire, before I go back there for everyone listening, ubiquitous is another big word that I learned on episode 15. Um, if anyone wants to go back, I did dive into the dictionary and that one. Ubiquay, Ben, it's the. Ubiquay, that's a new one. Well, it's the, it's the mantra for the sappers in the army, which. <laughs> oh, Cause it means everywhere. It's yes, like, it you, does. You know. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. engineers everywhere. A few engineers listening. <laughs> <laughs> No, mind our military banter, Claire. It's a, it's a little sidetrack here. You have to subordinates before, Claire, and, and my, uh, my old school military brain went straight into subordinate. I think I can't even count how many times we've called subordinates in the military. It's just, it's just it's ubiquitous with the military. <laughs> hey, <laughs> good on you, man. Quick learner. You're all that. Like, <laughs> that sentence for a while. <laughs> I just got a party uh, emoji from Gabe on there for everyone listening on the, on the Spotify as well. No, it was a great point, Claire, and uh, yeah, and I, I completely agree. I think it's um, it, it's yeah, it's it's we're in an interesting place in the world. Like my children are starting, my children are grade four and two, and they're starting to learn security uh, in uh, every second term. They have uh, a piece of their their learning is dedicated to being safe online, primarily because most of it is done through an iPad now, and it's just part of their learnings, they need to be safe online internal to their classroom. And then when they get home and they complete their work online to be safe in, in the rest of it. So it's great to see that it is creeping into and being in the security industry, I'm always fascinated by what they learn in it. So when my daughter comes home and has learned it, I'll always quiz her and ask what she learned and, and what she retained. And it's just interesting to see that the way they teach it is it's gamified. Uh, and it makes sense because the children pick up on that gamified learning quite quickly. And then it sinks into their long-term learning. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, my kids are of varying ages. So, uh, my eldest is in high school and my youngest is about to go to school. And so we have, um, these sort of varying different rules and controls and structures within the house to, um, to protect the kids, I suppose, because I feel like, um, there's a little bit of lost innocence now with everybody being on devices all the time. And, you know, YouTube can take the kids really quite quickly down a rabbit hole. And, um, the concerns around the fact that with teaching of cyber skills in schools, they also also have to teach about cyber bullying and about appropriate things to take pictures of. And, um, my eldest son at his school, they all hand their phones in at nine in the morning and they go in a big locked up tub and at 3 PM, these phones come back. And so they don't have them. And it just this morning, my son was saying to me, he actually really likes that because he said in his, um, friends who are in other schools where they can have their phones all day, people take pictures of people that they may not have wanted to have taken, you know, and, and it's a distraction. And yeah, so I think some kids are exposed in a way that they don't want to be because, um, you know, we've got these computers in our pockets that, that we carry around everywhere. And it's a real challenge as well, I think for schools that uh, maybe weren't this digital before and now with COVID and, and the way things are moving, um, they've had to take a huge leap forward, um, in terms of technology. And the other thing I'll say about it, you know, coming back to, um, to kids, you were saying before they can get on their iPads at home and, and do their homework in that way. 
uh, as adults, what we're seeing post-COVID is that people don't take as much sick leave because they um, can just work in bed if they want and cancel all their meetings or not put their camera on. What we're seeing with kids now too is that they might be sick and so they have to stay home from school, but all the work is on their laptop. Um, and so if they feel well enough to get on and do some maths work or get on and do some of their assignment, they can do that. So are we seeing a culture where we're breeding into children that well, you might be home sick, but actually <clears throat> the work's still there if you want to do it. So they're not resting. I don't know. I just, I think it's really interesting that they're, that we're teaching them cyber skills and, you know, we're asking them to understand the, the sort of protection side of things, but back to Gabe's point about the digital side, are, are our kids having to be always on even when they are probably not well enough? And are we, are we being good role models? <laughs> In that respect, because we're probably, I mean, I know when I had COVID earlier this year, I worked through it because I could work from home and, um, yeah, just kind of suffer through it. So yeah, I'm, I'm probably digressing a little bit, but I, I think it's an important thing that we remember about, um, kids is that they, you know, they sort of still need to be kids in a way. Need that, need that bit of disconnect, right? Gabe, you just experienced that for yourself over the last uh, week or so. Yeah, absolutely. Tech-free Sundays, Ben. I know you're a big fan of that. Sundays, yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. Well, I really recommend the trilogy of books by Alvin Toffler. He's a historian uh, back in the mid-1900s, Claire, and he speaks, you know, the saying information overload? Mm -hmm. he, sort of, he sort of dubbed that. He's got, the books are amazing. Like I dive into his literature, but he, he's got a book called Future Shock, and it's actually about how individuals and the psychological state of all societies is just like in this state of like there's way too much happening and way too much change and too short of a period of time and i strongly believe we're just like in the crux of that right now because of the acceleration of change and you can sort of forecast back and you know i'll go super deep in humanitarian at this point in the podcast where you take a look at historical trends and you know homo sapiens 200,000 years ago and then the agricultural revolution and scientific revolution and and so on and so forth then mechanization and what's happening only in the last 50 years and the old Moore's law thing where it's just like shorter gaps in between and the most recent periods of time. Um, it's just like exploding. So we're just like it's this mass state of confusion and those examples that you just spoke through there, Claire, which is just like always on type of culture, convenience culture. There's no rest in between, always digitally connected. There's just no downtime. And I think as well, a big disconnect mm -hmm. from nature is just putting us yeah. into big spirals of discomfort and misery and confusion and I have this conversation like all the time with people you know, I'm such a deep and meaningful conversationalist as soon as I can <laughs> but it's just like I think that's why that there's like a lot of grief and just confusion in the world at the moment is because of that accelerated pace of change and all the themes that we speak about on dark mode around those big shifts to society and humanity is happening and it's almost like for me personally the more that I can elevate myself above the day-to-day -day and just how much information we're all bombarded with and attention deficits and busy always on, the more that I can get above that, raise above the noise a little bit and just understand that macro global picture and what's happening at this point in history almost helps me just better navigate and understand what's happening in the world. But all of these big shifts and changes is definitely like right in the spotlight right now. And I think it's causing like a lot of people to be like, what's the right move on the chessboard right now? Because it's like, how do you ascertain that? So yeah, <laughs> everything about like solving these big problems too. And just like 
yeah, how do we make a better sense of what's happening? How do we educate our children? How do we help mental health issues? Like all that sort of thing. I think it does draw back to even what I mentioned before, like future shock as to what's happening now. I I think it's interesting. You talk about that as well. Um, I just wrote two things down while you were talking. One is information overload is one thing, but the quality of that information is not always that flash. <laughs> um, and so we're, we're consuming, um, <laughs> the information all the time, but it's not always real. Like a lot of, I, I saw, I saw something the other day that should have just said, this is an advertisement, but it said, um, oh, I can't remember now what, what it said at the top, but you, you kind of had to read it a few times to realize that you're actually being exposed to an ad as opposed to it being, um, an article or, or proper news content. So I think we're seeing a lot of, um, information that isn't always high quality and isn't always, um, appropriate or correct. And the other thing I wrote down, um, was that we are now living in a world where you don't actually have to leave your house anymore to live your life. You know, you can have pretty much anything you want delivered to your door. You can, um, work from home. You can school from home. You can eat, um, cook. You can, you know, you can have people come to your house and clean it for you. You can pretty much just sit in your chair, <laughs> um, and function and, and you don't really have to interact with other people if you don't want to. And, um, that's a pretty scary place for us to have gotten to, uh, in, in the world. And, you know, so just to reflect on what you were just talking about, you can stay in your house, not interact with others and just take in the information digitally. And sometimes that information is not, um, appropriate, correct. Um, or even true, uh, and you may not even know that, that that's the case. And, and I just think back to, this is probably a silly reference, but, um, but if you've seen the movie Wally, -E, where, um, you know, the little robot and the people have just become these kind of lost yeah. city. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That where we're headed, we're all going to yeah. wear movies. And <laughs> oh yeah. Lunges. For sure. Yeah. And then you think about like singularity is a very dystopian type of an example here where computers yeah. become so intelligent that they take over the natural intelligence of humans, which is like way, way off the mark, I think anyways, but it's just like, with even seeing some of the advancements in like web three and metaverse, it's not a natural state for us. Potentially if we had digital twins or some sort of digital avatar in there replicating and personifying us, that would be something that could potentially have utility but I'm not too sure, but, you know, just we're at the core of our species, we're very social and we do actually miss that quite a lot when we're so enthralled with digital devices. So we're in a very interesting seesaw period of time at the moment where we do need to work it out pretty quickly to be a thriving society is my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm a big fan. Someone asked me once, what was my best COVID purchase? Um, and I said it was my whiteboard because as a coach, I have a whiteboard that I have up behind me and I sort of mind map for my clients. And, uh, last week I went to Melbourne and spent three hours with a client, um, mapping out this, this security strategy. And it was the most productive three hours because if we had have done that via zoom, there's such a disconnect between, you know, the glass that we're looking through. When you're in the room with a person and you have that visceral response to what they're saying and you can, you know, you, you can read all their visual, their social cues and, you know, it's just a totally different immersive experience. 
than yeah. trying to have a conversation with someone through a computer. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, we all survived um, to an extent <laughs> through using Zoom and we continue to do so. But that hand, that handshake and if people are handshaking or elbow bumping or whatever we're doing, <laughs> but that um, social uh, interaction, you, you can't get that any other way than being face-to-face -face in a room with somebody. And I, I think that makes a considerable amount of difference to building trust, you know, looping back to the conversation we we're having earlier about building relationships, being influential. It's much easier to do that when you're in a, a proper room with people than you are on Zoom. And, and I, I experienced this um, sort of in a heightened way when I deliver to boards through Zoom where people don't have their cameras on. Um, it's really hard to build rapport with people um, or in the breaks, you don't go and have a coffee and sort of chat more around the, the coffee machine. Everybody switches their cameras off and goes on mute and, you know, comes back five minutes later. There's none of that sort of um, private chat where a director might come up to me at the coffee table and say, could you tell me a bit more about that? Because they're not comfortable to ask in the big group forum. So I think it's been a... Um, there's huge opportunity for us to get back in the room with people if we feel comfortable to do so and build that trust and rapport that, that you just can't build through Zoom. How'd you go, Ben, with your tech talks over COVID? Oh. Similar experience? Yeah, look, I think there's an art to building trust with uh, in vir virtual audiences. It's it's tough. And it's, uh, I think that you, your comments, Claire, on, on the, the coffee chat is is very valid and, and you can't replicate that digitally, uh, but the art there for, for, you know, I'm a full remote worker. So for me, I can go, I've done it before a couple of months ago, which was terrible. I was in a bit of a, uh, just put my head down and just get as much work done as possible. My wife said to me, when was the last time you left the house and reflecting, it was like, I hadn't left the house in three or four days, which is ridiculous to even consider that. But, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, at the same time, it's, a, it's reality. But for, for me as a remote worker, I'm constantly ringing people or video chatting with people to have those similar chats and just not having a set agenda. It's just a catch up, You're just ringing someone and chatting. So there is ways to do it, but I agree, especially when doing business to gain that respect and trust, it's, uh, it's much easier to do it when you've got the full capture of your full body and, and you can really determine that your body composition in terms of how you're behaving and, and you can feed off that to, to generate more conversation. So I agree, but, uh, it, it is tough. It is, it is tough, especially when you're meeting people for the first time virtually and you don't get to meet them in person for one, two, maybe even three years. Uh, mm. that, that's, that's a difficult thing, but to build that trust over that time, when you do finally meet them, it's a, it's like a recharge moment and, yes. and you sort of fill your cup up at that point. Oh, it's next level. I think once you eventually meet them and I think presenting over zoom, you need to be, um, much more interactive and changing things up all the time and play a video. And, um, I read a book, I was just trying to find the, the name of the book, but I read a book about, um, engaging presentations, um, over zoom and that they talk a lot about the fact that you have to tell more stories and you have to have different modes and mediums of presenting information and, uh, you know, sometimes slides and sometimes even just changes in the intonation in your voice can help to kind of keep people engaged. But on the flip side of that, I try really hard if I've got a day full of meetings to make a couple of them just regular mobile phone calls, because 
um, that way you, you're only having to concentrate on one form of communication. You're not having to try and read people through, through Zoom. And some people really appreciate just an old school phone call <laughs> yeah. rather than having to be, you know, always on as we were talking about before. Yeah. Speaking about like misinformation, you know, I just like, my mind goes straight to propaganda and, you know, the influence tactics around public opinion, I just find the psychological effect really interesting. But like, what do you think in terms of, you gave that example before where it took a, took a bit of critical thinking to ascertain what you're reading wasn't an article, it was more, in a, more of an advertisement. You, have you got any thoughts on just like the state of misinformation at the moment as it pertains to either online media or even misinformation campaigns, you know, in cyberspace? potentially even for children too. We were speaking about some of that before. I don't have a, I don't have a strong opinion on this. What I have seen is something I was reading, um, in the last few weeks and I can't remember the exact statistic, but it was a very high number of people who share articles without actually reading them or mm -hmm. they like articles on LinkedIn without actually reading the article or that, you know, they'll like a post, but they don't go off and read what the post was actually about. And I think that's something in this kind of short attention span lifestyle that we lead now is we read a headline or we might read the, the first couple of paragraphs of an article. We think we get the gist. And so then we just share it on LinkedIn or Facebook or Insta or, or we send it off to someone and say, you should read this. We're not giving the attention to some of this information that we should. And, you know, as I said, it, it took me a bit to realize that what I was reading was actually a, um, an ad as opposed to an article that was, you know, that was well thought through and well researched and not as curated, I suppose, as an advertisement might be. So uh, I don't have a strong opinion either way. It's more that I worry that people are sharing articles that, and, and information in general that they see online that they haven't actually thought that much about. Um, yeah. yeah. And potentially not super validated either. Like it's very see again generally it's easy to take a side of an argument or piggyback onto a belief system or something with not really any tangible rationality evidence or peer-reviewed studies even it's just like yeah I, i'll leave it at that <laughs> you talk about that earlier claire and i wrote down a proper news article which you said uh, i think there's there's a definition of that that has been shifted dramatically in the last five years, uh, where I think the rise in blogging and the rise of social media has allowed anyone to write articles, which is phenomenal because you can get more, uh, you get a more holistic approach to what people are trying to say. You can read opinions, but it's hard for the younger generation to understand that that is a singular opinion. It's not a well-researched, uh, unbiased article. It is, there's always bias in articles these days and it's all too easy to get stuck in your own echo chamber as well. I think that's the difficult path for people to get out of their own echo chamber and appreciate an unbiased approach to some of these articles. I think what we get served up as well, um, because you know, our phones are, are listening to us, mm. um, is interesting too. You know, we don't always have as much control over what's being served up to us as maybe we would like. Um, and. You know, blogs, I think are an interesting thing because you're right. We get a broader view of people's opinions. Um, but that might not always be, uh, appropriate or accurate, you know, as we were talking about earlier. Um, 
I don't know. I just worry about, um, yeah, I, I worry about misinformation, but I don't know how we change it because even for proper journalists now who are skilled and trained and went to uni and, you know, if we think about the cyber breaches that we see, the headlines are often written in a way that are clickbaity and the, um, articles are written in a way that, that might be biased or there might be some really great cyber research that gets done and the person will pluck a tiny little thing out of the, you know, a 300 page report and they'll write a whole article on one fact that's then, or one piece of the, the research findings that's taken completely out of context and kind of blow it out to be something else and they ignore everything else that that research might've found. And so I think there's a bit of that that goes on as well. And I have a, um, a Google alert that I get every day around cyber and boards and directors so that I can see what's being written about that. And, um, it fascinates me how some of the research that it's, but there's been a bit of research come out of late and the way that different people are reporting on that research and the findings and, and what they're kind of zeroing in on. Um, which is a worry when you think about what we spoke about earlier around cyber literacy at the board level, because if that's all they're consuming, if they're only consuming what they're seeing in the press, then they're getting potentially a very swayed view of what they need to know about cybersecurity to do their job. Most of the media is bullshit anyway. So. <laughs> Your word's not mine, but yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's here out in the public public sphere now. <laughs> the commercialization of media is that's what shifted it. It's the drive to have more click through. So therefore the clickbait headlines, uh, yeah. the, the, there's minimal substance to a lot of articles these days. And I know I, I have a good chunk of friends that are journalists and they're frustrated because they can't write the pieces they want to write, um, because it's, it's too lengthy. It's too, it's too yeah full of substance. So therefore less readers consume the entire article. Um, yeah. so it's, it's, I think it's a frustrating game from both sides of the fence. Hey, Claire, I wanted to ask you just about some of your experiences in working with like law enforcement and sort of the e-crime side of things. Oh, I get my, I've cast my mind back many years, but yep, go for it. Yeah. No, just like, I think the psychological side of it's interesting when it comes to perpetrators and motivations and things like that. Did you see any like stark differences between white collar traditional crime in a sense and what's happening in cyberspace? So I think, um, so when I worked with law enforcement, it was very much around, um, some very binary records that, um, that it was my job to deliver to law enforcement. And I worked around telephone tapping and, um, interceptions and also around telephone records. And this was very early in my career where the internet was sort of a new thing and there was no such thing as an iPhone. And, um, so a lot of the, uh, evidence that we gave was very much focused on this person called that person or this person journeyed, uh, and hit these mobile phone towers and that sort of thing. So, um, but that was a technology perspective on a quite a traditional crime that was going on. It might've been a rape or a murder or a drug deal or, or something like that. And they were using the technology evidence to help with the court cases. I think what we see with cyber is very much traditional crimes, just using technology to, um, enable or enhance the ability for that crime to be committed. And a really good example that, that, uh, we, I've been sharing lately is around RI advice, 
and uh, how they were taken to court civilly by ASIC. Um, and one of the things that came out through the judge's comments was that this was really a case of negligence. Now, negligence is a, a crime or a, um, a, a, an action that was around well before the internet and computers, you know, and it's, it's the same as cyberbullying. You know, we've always had bullies. It's just now they have a much bigger stage to, uh, and, a, and sometimes a much more private way of bullying people. And it's the same with fraud. We had fraud long before we had computers. And so what I think is, um, traditional crime where we've always had those traditional crimes. It's just that now we have computers and, and a technology that, or a lot of technology that allows these crimes to be carried out in a different way or potentially, um, in a much more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not private, but, um, people don't know who you are. Yeah. <laughs> Incognito. <laughs> yes. Sorry. I had a complete mind blank. Um, word. you're okay. able to, um, hide your person, hide your, um, identity. That's the word I'm looking for often in a much easier way and carry out crimes in a way that you can affect someone on the other side of the world in a way that before computers, you couldn't do that. So I, I really think that people can understand this if we talk to them about the fact that it's traditional crime, but it's being carried out through, I mean, ransoms, we've, we've had ransoms for centuries. It's just that we can do that now through a technical mechanism and it's unfortunate, but, but that's really the way that I see it is the crimes that I was working with law enforcement on well, well back in my career, nearly two decades ago, were the crimes that they were seeing 200 years before that. It's just that they were using technology to, to carry them out or technical evidence to help with it, you know, in front of a judge. Yeah, for sure. Ben, anything else from you? Well, I, that was just throwing my mind back to when we did similar, but while I was on the other side, the, the device would come in and, and our task was to find all the evidence in the device to then provide back. So yeah. It was casting my mind back as well. I was in another world then just thinking about some other things that I did. I went down a rabbit hole in my own mind. <laughs> Last question, Claire, will you be at ASA CyberCon this week? I won't be at ASA. Um, I have a really busy week uh, with clients. Very fortunate, have a very busy week with clients. And so I won't be at ASA, um, but I have been at ASA in previous years and, um, it's a very, really, it's a really, really good opportunity for people to come together. And, um, I think networking is one of the keys to not just in cyber, but anybody's career and professional development. So if you are going to ASA and you're listening to this, then, um, network, 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 I can't, uh, impose it upon you enough. So yeah. Amazing. Well, Claire, thank you for joining us on dark mode episode. Pleasure to host you and looking forward to crossing paths with you again in the future. Thank you so much for having me. And that time went so quickly. I know. Yeah. Flies when you're yeah. having fun. This has never been yeah, ever... for 90 minutes. No problems. Yeah. <laughs> Deep in conversation. We could have kept going too. That's okay. right. Thanks so much guys. It was, it was great to, uh, great to meet you, Ben. And, and thanks for having me, Gabe. Uh, I'll speak again. Likewise. Thanks, Claire. Thanks, Claire.